Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's always good to have you with us, and uh, we we are blessed to look into the Bible and continue to learn from the Word of God about future hope. Today we are going to discuss a little bit uh, more about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, and He died for us. I would like to say hello to uh, our panel today, and it's good to have you with us, uh, Will. Thank you, Nick. It's a great privilege. Thank you for joining us, uh, Jerry, also. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here again. Joe, it's good to have you with us. Yes, thank you. Good to be here. Brenton, thank you for uh, being part of this discussion. Thank you, Nick. This is an exciting topic. Lija, it's good to have you also joining Yes, thank you. I feel very privileged. Thank God. Len, thank you for uh, preparing uh, the Bible study for today. And um, it's always uh, a privilege to have you part of this panel. Well, thank you for that, Nick. And hello, listeners. Now, Len, uh, with no further uh, introduction here, I would like you to take us through to this uh, study today. Okay. Well, listeners, have you ever wondered what factors are or were involved in getting to getting you to where you are now? Some people would describe that as your destiny. Was it something to do with your ancestors, your siblings, just plain luck, opportunities, your partner, or what? Sociologists claim we are able to determine our own destiny by the choices we make. In other words, we largely control our destiny. Notwithstanding that, it may be possible to control some things, but no one has yet succeeded in controlling death. Today, our Bible study is based around someone whose destiny was to be born to die for us. Yes, Jesus, God with us, took upon himself humanity in order to save sinful mankind from eternal death. It cost him his life, although the story does not end in tragedy. Instead, it ends in victory. And what a magnificent theme we have to study this week. So stay with us if you can, as we present from the Bible the greatest story ever told, the true story of the God who died. Before we launch into this topic, Will, would you pray for us and our listeners? Sure. Dear Lord, we acknowledge the incomprehensible love of God to seek and save the lost. Yes. Yes. Please help us in response to show our gratitude by wanting to be your servants and desiring to be, to do your will for our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Will. All right. Well, when was it known that Jesus would be born to die. It was known, uh, actually, Len, before the creation of the world, and I'm going to read a text. 
starting in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, it says, knowing that you, talking to those that Peter wrote the book to, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days. God had a plan in place. And I think that's the important issue, uh, Len, that uh, this wasn't some afterthought. It was all part of the divine plan, but the divine plan unfolded progressively. And its ultimate re- revelation, as we will discover, was in Christ's sacrifice. So I think that covers it pretty well. Revelation 13.8 says pretty much the same thing before the creation of the world. In other words, in God's foresaw, he foresaw the uh, existence of sin and a plan was ready to be uh, put in place should that occur. All right. Well, God wasn't caught off guard. No, no. But, Joe, wasn't Jesus the creator of the world and therefore existed before the world came into being? That's absolutely true. And uh, we have John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, telling us that very thing. And if I may read it, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And we've got a couple of other texts in Colossians and Hebrews that pretty well say that, you know, through him him also he made the universe and um, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. So everything, Jesus was the creator of all. Again, God was not caught off guard. Before the world was created, before man sinned, there was a plan put in place. Now, Jerry, perhaps you could just um, do a bit of revision for us in your own words and just explain the situation leading up to the plan of redemption. Yes, Len, and in previous lessons, we've discussed the issue of rebellion in a perfect universe in heaven. Um, and how Lucifer, the light bearer, the one who stood in God's immediate presence, challenged God's position and authority. So this eventually ended in an open revolt and causing him and a third of the angels who sympathized with him to be removed from heaven and God's presence. So with that, Lucifer is no longer called the light bearer. He's now called Satan, the adversary. And we read in Genesis how he's successful in deceiving Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, whereby sin enters planet Earth. So what is sin? That's a big question. Um, My understanding of sin is that it's disobedience to the revealed or known will of God. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin or the result of sin is death. So through Adam and Eve's act of disobedience, sin has affected, or you could say infected the human race. It's affected our human nature, and uh, and we're all victims of sin. Because um, 
it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as Brenton pointed out, uh, I think from Revelation 13, verse 8, that um, this plan of salvation was not an afterthought. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read about how uh, from the very beginning, uh, God indicated that um, he would set things straight at great cost to himself, as we know. Uh, if Perhaps if I could just uh, quote that verse again from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where, where God says, I will put enmity between you, that is the adversary Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, capital S, the, the seed of the woman refers here to Jesus Christ who would come. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is, he shall bruise the seed, Christ, will bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. So um, what what I read in this is that God, who gave man free will and the the, uh, the free choice to obey or to disobey, um, takes the ultimate responsibility for when things go wrong. You know, so often we hear people say, oh, I'll take, I'll take the ultimate responsibility for that. And then they move on as though nothing's happened. But here God takes the, uh, the full consequences of giving people that freedom of choice. And God is love. We read in First uh, John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. So he wants more than anything else to save people, to win them back. And and in he, he gives himself, he sacrifices himself, takes the sins of the world upon himself so that we don't have to suffer that, that death, that penalty for sin. And, and that, that's the ultimate in love. God is love. Yes, thank you, Jerry. That was uh, very eruditely explained. Brenton. Just to comment on uh, further to what Jerry said, it's interesting that, and the good news for all of us, both as a panel and those that are listening to this program, is that the one who created us is the only one who could redeem us. No other substitute was appropriate. And uh, therefore, the one who created us, uh, Colossians tells us that all things were created through Christ. And uh, he was the one who redeemed us. And I'm very thankful for that because it assures us that the one who who uh, created us in the first place is the one who has paid the price, the ultimate price himself. Yes, Jesus, our saviour, was born to die. Now, some people reason this way. Since God is love, it was and it is against his character that Jesus should suffer and die. Therefore, they say, Jesus never died. But if Jesus never died, could he be our saviour? No. It was necessary for him to bear the penalty of the sins of humanity, the wages of sin being death. Well, while he was here on earth, Jesus, especially before the crucifixion, shared with his disciples what was to happen to him. And what was their reaction, Nick? Yes, Len, uh, this is a very interesting passage in the Bible. And actually, I would like to read um, those uh, couple of verses in uh, Matthew chapter 16. 
And starting from verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. This is a strong passage in the Bible when uh, our Lord Jesus Christ called one of his very trustful disciples, Behind me, Satan, because your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of this earth. And as you ask, uh, Len, the question, you know, uh, while Jesus was on this earth, you know, the expectation of him to be the, uh, you know, Messiah. And these people, actually the disciples, they recognized that he is the Messiah. But he didn't understood correctly the role of Jesus or the plan of salvation, to put it in other words. I would like to just draw a lesson for myself today, maybe for you, my dear listener. Don't jump quickly into uh, expressing your feelings, you know, uh, or ask first many questions if it's possible. Try to understand before you make a, an opinion, a public uh, opinion. Because unfortunately, you know, uh, Peter was put into the position of uh, shutting up. Egg on his face. Look, I mean, this is a very important aspect. And we all are facing difficult things in these days. And probably sometime too quickly can, we can jump to uh, different uh, conclusions. Being under the pressure, peer pressure of the thinking of this world or whatever expectation we may have, and we may miss out the real thing who we are and why we are here and what Jesus has done for us. Yes, well, in those verses you read, Jesus foreknew what was going to happen to him and uh, he knew what his mission was. Later on, he put it to God the Father, if there's any way to escape what I have to go through, I'd be happy to have it, but... He said, your will be done. So why did Jesus rebuke Peter for rebuking him, did you? I think Peter, in his limited humanly mind, he didn't fully comprehend or not fully understand Jesus' mission. Yes, that was it. Yeah. Um, I think probably, as has been explained uh, from other sources, that the disciples were expecting Jesus to set up a an earthly kingdom, whereas he explained, no, it's a spiritual kingdom. 
All right, well, let's move on. Now, that wasn't the only time that Jesus explained to his disciples what was going to happen to him. So, Will, would you like to read Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, and then answer the question, uh, what was the disciples' reaction and why? Well, let me read that uh, in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. It says, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. You know, in shock and grief, they realized that Jesus was offering up his life in service to his father and for the salvation of mankind. And in their text, they they heard the words, into the hands of men, and the words, they will kill him. You know, the sheer enormity of the sacrifice, I believe, was dawning on them then. And they seemed to sense a gathering gloom and the cruelty that surrounded the Savior's arrest and uh, torture and death on Calvary. It would be far worse than their anticipation, though. And so I can understand why it says the disciples were filled with grief. Appreciate what Will has said. The Mark version uh, in Mark chapter 9 says that um, they did not understand what he was talking about and were afraid to ask him. I think we all know as a panel the word denial. So there was grief involved here, but there's also denial. One of the problems with denial is if you study the stages of grief, it's one of the five stages of grief. The problem is that uh, denial prevents you from being able to move on. And because they didn't want to ask him about it because it didn't fit in with their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah would do, they were unable, I believe, to respond appropriately when Christ was crucified, they were completely, it seems, taken by surprise. Whereas if they had been able to move through that, they would have better understood, I believe, the sacrifice that he was going to make for the sins of the world. It's interesting the terminology used in the scriptures, Yes, which says they were filled with grief. And yet, if we apply this to ourselves and to our times, Jesus died in order to redeem us from our sins. And basically, anyone who sins, including us, was responsible for his murder. So my question is, and you might like to tackle this, Will, how should we feel? Should we be filled with grief as we think about the fact that our sins cause the death of God himself? Uh, most certainly, Len, grief. Uh, uh, but I believe gratitude as well. You know, redemption so undeserved should fill us with grief. Grief for our continued choosing to live in unrighteousness and disobedience. Our sheer unworthiness is frightening, actually, if you think about it, as we uh, face a holy God. But then again, gratitude 
for the marvelous grace that he offers his poor subjects. I love what the evangelist Charles Stanley says when he sketches God's profound involvement in our dilemma. And a few dot points. It's simple, but he says, the penalty of your sin was death, physically and spiritually. Sin demanded separation from life and God. God's plan is so simple. We are guilty. Our guilt has earned us death. Christ died in our place. We admit that we are guilty. We trust that Christ was punished in our place. We are declared not guilty. And then he ends by saying, that's it. (laughs) Well, I think that's a really good explanation. I think there are a lot of people who accept Christ's death for their sins, but they have a pretty vague idea about it, but that's nice and clear. Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen to him, and you can understand that. But someone else who was not one of Jesus' disciples was informed what was going to happen. Who was it, and what did Jesus say to him? Well, that person was Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a Pharisee and part of the ruling council. So he was quite up there. And, of course, worrying about his reputation, he made an appointment to see Jesus, came out to see Jesus in the evening when he wouldn't less likely to be seen. And he has an interesting conversation with Jesus. And, um, you know, he first praises him and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. But Jesus quickly gets to the bottom of the matter and says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they be born again. And we have this little conversation happening. And right at the end, right at the end, Jesus says to him, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, Nicodemus may have had questions in his own mind about the Messiah, the Messiahship of Jesus, what that would look like, and perhaps he had similar thoughts to what the disciples did. And so here Jesus Jesus tells him, no, the Son of Man must be lifted up. and I think Brenton's going to tell us more about this example. And, and Nicodemus would have puzzled, how could this be? How could Jesus be lifted up? And we know that that phrase, lifted up, has been used in terms of his crucifixion, but also his ascension to God. So very interesting. All right. Yes, Nick. So I just want to mention um, here that, those people who were uh, around Jesus at that time, they were disappointed of some of the things Jesus said. Now, most of the time, Jesus showed to them, you know, the amazing things of uh, supernatural. But when he was telling them what's going to happen to him, and Jesus always quoted the Bible, the Old Testament, even in this case, that he will be lifted up. And they were not able to recall what the Bible been taught from generation to generation because their mind was fixed on the agenda. 
on the earthly things. And you know what? The disciples were even hesitant to ask further questions to Jesus sometime just because of that. Uh, but yeah, Jesus continued to, to teach them from the scripture and attract their attention to the scripture. That's what we need to do. That's what we are doing Bible study because too often human ideas and teachings will surface into our life. We need to really know the Bible to be able to understand what's God's plan for us today, not only 2,000 years ago, but what's God's plan for us today. And we need to know the Bible because the Bible reveals that plan. We have a place to play in God's plan. If we don't identify that, we may be exactly in the shoes of these disciples. All right. Well, now, coming back to what Joe was sharing from uh, the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus recorded in John chapter 3, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, why was this snake, this bronze snake in the wilderness in the time of Moses as the leader of the uh, children of Israel, why was that lifted up or put on a pole of some sort? Can I um, read it from Numbers 21, verse 4? Then they journeyed from Mount Hall by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. God had led them then up until this point. He had provided for their every need. There are actually many of these serpents in the desert. So I did a bit of research on it and there is some suggestion that may, it may have been the Egyptian saw-scaled viper. They seem to think that that's possibly the snake that may have been biting these people. Apparently, the results of its venom are similar to what's described here in Scripture. Looking at a bronze snake on a pole isn't going to do anything. The bronze snake can't do anything for you. It was the symbol of the fact that only God's power could... Uh, heal them. So you had a choice. If you were bitten by the snake, you were swelling up and uh, you knew you were going to die and your family was saying, look at the pole, look at the pole, you had a choice. You could either look at the pole and live or not look at the pole and die. And um, why did Christ say this to Nicodemus? Well, I think Joe covered it pretty well, but basically Nicodemus was familiar with this story. So in introducing it this way, he's actually telling Nicodemus, just as looking at this snake 
cured the people of Israel because they were trusting in God's provision for them. So if when I'm lifted up, you will see that God's provision for your salvation is in me. So the bronze serpent represented the propitiation. That's a big word, Len, <laughs> the wrath of God. Whoever looked at the snake would know that the wrath of God was turned away. The cross of Christ displays the wrath of God as well as the turning away of that wrath. I can't help but think in, uh, in my comments of a text, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I think that covers it pretty well. Yes. Well, Nicodemus, of course, was a Bible student. He would have studied the scriptures, probably memorised a lot of them. He would have known about the journey of the Israelites through the, the desert and what happened when the snakes came. And so Jesus was able to point to that as the act of faith, looking up to the bronze serpent on the pole was uh, a means of saving them from death. So in like manner, when Jesus was up on the cross, looking to him in faith can also save us. Well, now, in his final journey to Jerusalem, Jesus again spoke of what was to happen to him. And, Jerry, if you wouldn't mind reading Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, I want to ask you, why did they not comprehend what Jesus told them? Because some earlier stage, it says they were filled with grief. So starting at verse 31, it says here, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. In verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. It's interesting, isn't it? As you say, we've, we've already looked at Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, where it says that they were exceedingly sorrowful. I think Jesus is trying to really make it clear to them what is about to happen. But, you know, I thought about that. If you, if you put yourself in the position of one of the disciples and you've been with Jesus for three and a half years and you've seen what he's done, the miracles he's performed, and the hope that he was able to instill in the hearts and minds of men and women and how he restored their dignity and, and gave them this, this wonderful hope, how would that affect you as a, a disciple, a, a relative, if you like, nobody? in the very presence of, of somebody like Jesus, surely you must be thinking, oh, I'm in a really good spot here, a really good position. Something fantastic is going to happen here. So I guess, um, you know, even we say in, in, in our common day language, you can close your eyes to the, to the obvious and only see what you choose to see or choose to want to see. And I think it was, that was the case with them. They did just didn't want to believe what Jesus was talking about, that this could possibly happen. They didn't want to believe it. Uh, and in that sense, 
they're in denial. Now, Brenton has already mentioned that. They're in denial. They didn't want to see it. Didn't want to believe it. But Jesus was quite clear what was going to happen. Yes. That's how I, that's how I take it. Well, we have in our modern parlance, I don't believe you. Yeah. Yes. Somebody tells her, uh, an event, maybe uh, escaped unharmed in an accident and the car was a complete write-off and yeah. said, well, I, I came out without a scratch and somebody else would say, I don't believe you. They don't want to believe you. You know, this highlights something which we come across all the time, particularly in a religious sense. So, Nick, why is it? that some people do not want to know the truth? That's a very good question, Lynn. And um, I believe, yes, we ourselves experience that uh, quite often, that people don't want to know the, the truth. Again, I would like to draw uh, your attention to a passage in the Bible in Second Timothy chapter 4. And there are a couple of verses there which I like to read, verse 3 and 4. I'm reading again from New Living Translation. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their eyes away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. This is a very important uh, passage in the Bible, because uh, even in the time of Jesus, those teachers of the law, those uh, Pharisees, and uh, they did a lot of things which were not required from God or from the Bible. They were putting in place their own doctrines, if you like, to suit them their uh, desires. And we can do the same thing today. And, you know, draw my attention in that passage that said the people have itching ears because they want to hear what they like to hear, rather what God is speaking out. And sometimes, you know, God's message is not always pleasant because it confirms reality. It confirms the sinful nature in which we are, and God wants to take us out of that. And human beings, they don't like to be taught that they are wrong or that they have a problem. They are not going in the right direction. That's human nature. We need to educate ourselves as Christians or God's children to tune our ear to the voice of God rather than to the teachings of man. Jesus said to the Teachers of that day, how well did you change the law of God in favor of your own tradition? And no wonder that they they didn't receive Jesus. They were blind. I believe this is a very important passage, uh, Len, in the Bible. And I would like uh, us to, to ponder on this one in our own time. Yes, some people just don't want to hear the truth. Truth can be very uncomfortable. And I know that there are various doctrines that people hold that are not supported from the Bible, and yet they're held very dear. Yes, Joe. I think it's not always that sinister. Um, sometimes it's just that 
it you know what we hear is challenges everything that we've held as the truth for a very very long time and i guess as we get older our ability to change our way of thinking and accept new things can be a challenge and an increasing challenge and sometimes even um our childhood our backgrounds our education our culture can hamper what we perceive and how we perceive new information and how we how we understand the truth that we're being presented with it's not always like i don't want to know this it could be just that we are hampered hampered by just the way we are as humans and the aging process or you know the indoctrination that we received over a lifetime sometimes you know and how it fits into our social network and you know it's far far more complicated than we give it credit sometimes yeah i'm i'm also reminded of uh, a verse in first corinthians chapter 2 it talks there in chapter 2 verse 7 and 8 about the wisdom of god it says but we speak the wisdom of god in a mystery the hidden wisdom which god ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew for had they known they would not have crucified the lord of glory and i can't help but believe that had they wanted to know they would have accepted jesus maybe i don't know if everybody would agree with me here but um you know you have to have a desire to want to know the truth the truth is out there and um the rulers of this age in this verse they could have known and they should have known but they chose not to Yes, Brenton. There's another aspect to it. I think Jerry and Joe have both touched on very important points here. I believe uh, part of the reason for Second um, Timothy four verses three and four lies with the re- uh, theological teachings that are going around in our world today. A lot of the theology that is taught today, believe it or not, even though it claims to lead people to Jesus, it's, a, it's actually all about making them feel good about themselves. Now, the Bible does not present that as the situation. The Bible is actually fairly stark. It, it shows me that I'm completely lost. I'm completely helpless, and I need a savior to get me out of the problem that I'm in. Um, I think part of our responsibility as as ministers and as teachers is to share with people that we are in a dire situation that we can't do anything about and getting a teacher that makes you feel good about yourself is not going to solve the problem. What mm-hmm. you need is a teacher who will lead you to the one who can help you but in teaching progressively um reveal to the person the plan of salvation and how it works because we now have the fullness of the plan of salvation the patriarchs never had the fullness of the plan of salvation we do we understand everything that god has revealed to us for our salvation everything that is necessary for you and i len and the rest of our listeners to stand one day at the pearly gates and be welcomed into the city of god by jesus we have all of that it's all there if we accept it but we have to have as jerry said a willingness i believe to uh, to want to follow it but i do believe that we have been remiss as teachers uh, as theological teachers in making people feel good about themselves 
The only way they can feel good about themselves is when they recognise that Christ reconciled them to God by his death on the cross. Yes, amen to that. Yes, Nick? Yeah, I was glad that uh, Brenton uh, raised up that because, as I mentioned a bit earlier, reading those uh, verses, people are after, you know, things which they like, itching ears. You know what the problem is uh, in our days? That we rely a lot only on what we hear from all sources, you know, on on social media, on whatever it is, you know, we just like to hear things. We kind of lost that uh, desire of knowing things, as Brenton just mentioned. We need to know ourselves. We need to study the Word of God, the Bible, to see, to see if that's the reality. Because those people who are speaking out, they are very capable. They are capable to tell things and to twist things and to take your mind away from what is the reality in the Bible. And we know that Satan has his own agencies which will uh, work to confuse people. I pray to God that uh, we'll be students of the Bible. And that's the reason of this Bible study also, to bring the Bible alive in our life. Yes. Well, now, what we've um, dealt with so far is the information that was imparted that Jesus was going to suffer on the cross and die for humanity. So while he was actually hanging on that cross, what were the last words he said as recorded in John 19.30? Lydia? Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what did he mean when he said, it is finished? I think Jesus implied that his agony on the cross came to an end, so Satan was defeated and the requirements for him to be our own saviour came in place. Yes, so he accomplished the mission which he came for. Brenton, you would like to add? Yes, I'd just like to add to what Lidgy said. She certainly stated the truth there. I think the term it is finished had a number of facets to it. One of the key ones is it finally unmasked Satan's character. It was Satan who inspired the priests and rulers and the Romans to destroy Christ, to crucify him. So Satan's character was finally unmasked before everybody. And it's rather interesting when you read Revelation 12, 9, I think it is, or 12, 10, it talks about rejoicing in heaven. And I believe the setting, the chronological setting for this was Christ's death on Calvary, where it says, Rejoice, ye heavens, because the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Now, who are the brethren? That's us. That's us, uh, members of the panel, those who are listening to our uh, broadcast. We are the ones who are the brethren that the angels are talking about. In other words, that's the relationship, that's the family relationship that God wants with his um, human family. He wants us to have that. And Satan, by being cast down, opens the way for us to be accepted because of what Christ has done for us. Because he took my penalty, I'm accounted a son of God or a daughter of God in the case of uh, Job. And Mm. I think that's absolutely fantastic. (laughs) Yes. Now, Jesus said, 
it is finished. But what if he'd said it is not finished and he uh, jumped down off the cross and went back to his Father in heaven? What would be the consequences to us as humanity, the consequences for himself, and the consequences for Satan, the originator of sin? Does anybody like to respond to that question? I think it is finished relating to us. It means we would be finished. We would be finished. If he said it is not finished, it would mean that we were finished permanently. The second death that the Bible talks about is the death that we we would die. And because he died that second death on our behalf, we don't have to go through it. All right. What about um, himself? Yes, Joe. Well, it would appear then that... God's claim that he loves his creatures would come into question because here it would show that perhaps God wanted to save himself or Jesus wanted to save himself more than he wanted to save his creatures because he thought it wasn't, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And I think it would raise questions in the minds of the unfallen worlds as well as to whether God was truly love if he was willing to save himself rather than his creatures. As, as is the case that he is actually, he did die to save his creatures. And I guess the world would have, um, the world, unfallen worlds would have probably seen enough of sin to have justified the annihilation of this planet, Satan and his angels, but we wouldn't have stood a chance. And therefore I think Jesus had to come to die. Yeah. I think he came to die just to save us. Yeah. So one last consequence, what would be the consequences for Satan if Jesus never went through with uh, dying for humanity on the cross? Anybody like to respond to that? He would have actually become, he claims, already claims himself to be the self-styled ruler of this world. He would have actually become the ruler of this world and set up his alternative kingdom down here but this is the point worth considering when we died that was it there's no future life to look forward to so each successive race that lived on this earth would go through whatever they went through and they would die but there was there would be no hope for the future there would be no future resurrection or anything of that magnitude in other words pack everything you can into this life which is what many people are doing glenn Anyway, <laughs> because there's no no tomorrow. You know, I would like to uh, to say something again, which I hope that will be taken in the right way. I believe it's, it was benefic for Satan also that Jesus died. Imagine Satan and his kingdom to live eternally in misery, <laughs> to live eternally in this madness. I believe. The problem with Satan was that in his proudness, he didn't want to come to, to his senses to say, okay, I blew it, you know, but God, and, but he will recognize in the end, he will recognize. And the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is more than we understand only for our own benefit that uh, our sins are taken away. And, you know, God dealt with sin. God actually put in order the whole universe at his death. And it's an amazing uh, 
thing to, to ponder on. It's not simple, but it's beautiful. I think that this earth is decaying and um, all of creation is groaning. And I think it's by God's, God's uh, intention that we are, it says in, I'm not can't sure exactly where it was found, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, God is actually keeping this whole world going. And, um, you know, I can't see this world lasting indefinitely, eternally, um, as is. It's only by God's graciousness that he's keeping us going for this long because we would have self-destructed a long time ago. Yes. So, Jerry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 24, it talks about earthly wisdom being foolishness. Why? Really, it's a figure of speech, isn't it, when you talk about the the foolishness of God. He, he compares man's wisdom or foolishness, if you like, with, with God's wisdom or foolishness. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us. So, um, yeah, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? He challenges. Where is the, the, the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And you should put that in brackets, of course. God's, God's wisdom is wiser than the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world without God's wisdom is of no value. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it's coming down to. I mean, you're better off being, quote, unquote, a fool and believing the gospel than being a wise man in this world and not believing the gospel. Yes. And the outcomes are totally different. I guess that's what he's getting at. And you can memorize the whole of Encyclopedia Britannica and you'd be acclaimed as being pretty smart, but if it has no permanent benefits, it's foolishness. It just doesn't count. Absolutely. Why did Jesus surrender his life on the cross? Then simply put, my sin deserves death. God's wrath will be directed toward unrighteousness and corruption. There's a price to pay for my transgression, and here I am standing right in the target So Jesus stood between me and the judgment of God. And we are permitted to accept this substitutionary sacrifice. And he takes our place. Can I read a text? Romans 3, 26, in the today's English version. God sent Christ to be our sacrifice. Christ offered his blood. So by faith in him, we could come to God. And God did this to show that in the past he was right to be patient and forgive sinners. This also shows that God is right when he accepts people who have faith in Jesus. Beautiful text indeed. Yes. Now, Brenton, what else does the cross reveal? It reveals God's supreme love for us. It consists of two parts, Len. Verse 6 says, while we were without strength, Christ died for us. And verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The simple answer is that Christ came at a time when we were completely helpless, according to the divine timetable. And here he is dying on the cross for us at the appropriate time. You can't have a greater demonstration of love than that. Wonderful. There's something else revealed too, Joe. It says um, 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, disobedience has consequences, and the consequences of sin are the wages, suffering and death, both physical and spiritual. They say you are what you eat. And that we might agree with that, but you are also what you do or what you choose to because what you do changes who you are, either for the better or for the worse. And if you're trapped in a life of constant sin, then you are a slave to a very hard taskmaster, which only leads to suffering and eventually to death. But we have been freed. And the good news is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is the bit that really matters also for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this is a misconception. A lot of people think that God is there to judge and, um, you know, we are to earn his uh, love, but it tells us that there was no, he didn't come to condemn, but to save because he loves us. Yes. It breaks the chain of sin. Absolutely. Well, there's, there's more. What's another thing that the cross reveals, Lydia? As we can read in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 9 to 11, Paul is uh, saying here that I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here is pointing out that it reveals that uh, only hope and gaining eternal life through the suffering and death of Jesus. Yes, our only hope. Yes. There's no other hope. Only through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection can we have eternal life. Now, there's one more thing. Nick, would you like to point that out? And that's beautiful, that one more thing, Len, because in uh, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, um, the last chapter, actually, in the Bible, in verse 3, it says in chapter 22, And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. There will be no more suffering, not death, land and panel and listener. There will be a wonderful time for eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, that we may live with him. Yes, it basically means the end of sin in the whole universe forever. But of course we're not quite there yet where God hasn't God hasn't cleansed the world of sin. But this is the means by which it will happen. I'd just like to read the following statement, uh, Len. It says here when a baby is born, he or she comes into the world with nothing. When someone dies, they go out of the world with nothing. But when a genuine Christian dies There is a difference. He or she dies with the hope, the promise, the assurance that at the return of Jesus, there will be a resurrection. 
to eternal life. All this is because of what Jesus did for us. Yes, isn't that good? Yes. Well, now, we've been talking about the death of Jesus, but Jesus' death was not a failure, but a victory, because he did not remain in that cold tomb forever, but rose again. And I'd like to share with you one last Bible passage of hope. And it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. And I want to read this. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Yes. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The hope of us, that is your panel today, is founded on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our prayer for you is that you have this same hope. And next week, we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. So to finish off today, Joe, would you like to pray for us and the listeners? Certainly. Father in heaven, words are insufficient to thank you for what has been done for for each and every person, no matter where they are, what they've done, where they've come from. It is never too late to seek you, Father, seek forgiveness and to come to you with a desire for change and the power to change. The Bible tells us that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Give us this belief and help us to trust you to work in our lives so that we will be freed from the chains of sin and death to a new life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, that's all for from us today, my dear friend, listening today. But uh, we are inviting you to join next time when we are going to um, learn a bit more about uh, Christ's victory over death. Until then, may God richly bless you and continue to walk in his footsteps. <laughs>